So if you think about the introduction to the book of Job, it has this uh, set of scenes that move back and forth between earth and heaven. And so in our first scene uh, there, we've already uh, been uh, introduced to Job. He is this man of wealth. He's not just a man of wealth. He's the greatest man in all of the East. And he's not just a a great man, but he's a good man. Um, Job is a a paragon of righteousness. It says, uh, the narrator says, he's upright, blameless, fears God, and turns away from evil. Um, and he offers just-in-case sacrifices uh, for his, uh, his children who were there. That Who knows that they may have, you know, accidentally cursed God in their hearts, and so he's, he's doing sacrifices like that. So that's our introduction to him there on earth. Well, then the, the scene shifts up into heaven. And so we go up into heaven, and you remember that conversation between uh, the, the Satan and uh, God. The Lord said to the Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on earth. God says the same thing the narrator says. A blameless man who is upright, fears God, and turns away from evil. So, And this is going to be very important later on in our study. It is, it is just so tempting to try to stick Job into a disobey category. But both the narrator and God, twice, will say, no, this guy is upright, blameless, fears God, turns away from evil. That's the sort of fellow that he is. The Satan answered the Lord, well, <laughs> well does Job fear God? For nothing. And there's our, our special phrase there, right? That, that word, hinam. And it's the same one as, a, does he fear you for nothing? God's going to say, you provoked me to, to attack him for nothing. So that's our word. Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you put a fence around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands. His possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand now and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So that's where uh, the, the Satan, and you remember his role in this story is to play basically the devil's advocate. That if God says Job is good, well, it's the Satan's role to take the other side of the case and say, well, <laughs> maybe he is good, but he's only good because you keep giving him good stuff. Take the stuff away and he won't be good anymore. But stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, he'll curse you to your face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well. All that he has is in your power, only don't stretch out your hand against him. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And you remember that next thing, so we were up in heaven, now we're back on earth. And back on earth, it's taking away all of Job's stuff. Um, His possessions will be destroyed, his animals will be destroyed, his servants will be killed, and then finally his own children will be killed. So all ten of his children are gone. And how will Job respond? Verse 20 of chapter 1, Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. So this is Job's response, and that's why I've I've quoted that line a few times. It says, Job is he is he's positively saintly. Is he human? Because of the way that he responds in this kind of circumstance. It's really quite incredible. All right, so we were on earth. Now we go back up to heaven again. And so when we get to heaven, we have the same conversation that we've had before, right? You know, well, one day the heavenly, the, all the heavenly beings came to present themselves before the Lord. The Satan also came to present himself. Where have you been? Walking to and fro. That, that's uh, stylized language there. The Lord said to the Satan, have you considered my servant Job? 
There's no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still persists in his integrity. That's an important line there. Although you incited me against him to destroy him for nothing. There's our word, for no reason. The Satan answered the Lord, skin for skin. All that people have, they will give to save their lives. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. The Lord said to the Satan, very well, he's in your power, only spare his life. So the Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and inflicted loathsome sores on Job from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. So we've gone back down to earth and he has uh, afflicted Job with all of these things. And now, well, well, this is where the star of today's show comes in, is once, uh, once this affliction has hit Job, well, how are the people around Job going to respond and uh, th this is the, the verse, as it says in the New Revised Standard. It says, uh, Then his wife said to him, Do you still persist in your integrity? Curse God and die. Now that's the only line that she gets. And so it's amazing that not only does uh, Ballantyne have a, an entire chapter over this, there are, there are novels that are written based off of the story of Job's wife. There are, there's all sorts of medieval art, uh, you know, on the basis of it and things like that over that. It's only six words long in Hebrew uh, is all that's there. Um, and yet there's a, it's a very long section. Um, and here, this is where I'm glad I've got my table here because I'm, I'm on team Job. And, and I'm, some people might take offense at what he says here. The New Revised Standard puts it this way. But he said to her, you speak as any foolish woman would speak. And see, at that point, about half my crowd usually are like, well, sick him again, Satan. You know, it's like, you know, a little harder with some elbow this time, um, you know. So it's, uh, but that, that's, uh, that's what he says. Well, that's how it's translated there. Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So there we, we have Job's response to her. It's, it's so little to work with, but it certainly doesn't mean that people haven't tried to fill in the blanks. And, and that's not an uncommon thing. I, I mean, we do this, um, well, well, take Shakespeare, for example. What do we actually know? What do we know about Shakespeare the person? Almost nothing. I mean, I could recognize him on the street because I've, I've seen the paintings of him and such. And I know lots of his plays and things like that, but... I know very little about him. I, we, we went to Stratford-upon-Avon, and we, we've seen the house where he lived for a while and so forth, and we had some wonderful cream of mushroom soup, as I recall there. I know more about the cream of mushroom soup that we had at Stratford-upon-Avon than I do about Shakespeare, um, yeah, having lived there. We went to, we saw Much Ado About Nothing at the Globe Theater. I know far more about how uncomfortable the seats are at the Globe than I do about Shakespeare himself. I, it's, um, it, it was fun. In fact, we know so little about Shakespeare that some people, I think it's part of the impetus for why they try to deny to Shakespeare the authorship of his plays. It's because they say, no, I mean, surely this nondescript nobody can't have produced 
these incredible works here. It, uh, maybe it was Christopher Marlowe. It must have been somebody else because it just couldn't be this person. Um, there's a, a wonderful movie, Shakespeare in Love, which I, I hope that you've seen, where uh, it's based off of a Tom Stoppard, uh, uh, I think it's actually a play that he, he wrote or certainly the screenplay for it. And what it does is it fills in the blanks. And so you have the story of Romeo and Juliet, and you're, you're trying to think of something uh, related to uh, who Shakespeare was. Well, it basically cast him, Shakespeare, in the role of Romeo, and then it cast uh, a, a, a woman, uh, it's, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is the character who plays it in the movie, as uh, Viola, and she's essentially the Juliet character uh, who's in there, and it's, it's, they are star-crossed lovers because he's already married and she's betrothed to be, uh, you know, the wife of uh, Colin Firth, you know, so it's got a wonderful cast, uh, you know, uh, Judy Dench is in there, plays a great Queen Elizabeth, it's just amazing. Um, but, uh, well, what are they doing? They're, they're filling in the blanks about this character that we don't know. Some of you, I assume, along with me, will be Sherlock Holmes fans. And Sherlock Holmes is one of those stories that it's just, it, you can just redo it and redo it and redo it again. I mean, whether it's uh, John Barrymore back in the 20s or Basil Rathbone did one, uh, Peter Cushing, known to some of you as Grand Moff Tarkin, um, he did a, a, a version of Sherlock Holmes there. It was a fantastic one that was done for, it wasn't actually the BBC, but it was a British uh, set with a, a guy named Jeremy Brett, who unfortunately died of a heart attack, but he, he was just, uh, he, he was Sherlock Holmes, basically. He was so good at the role. Disney does it. Robert Downey Jr. has done it. Uh, Ian McKellen has done it. Will Ferrell has done it, albeit in a, a parody version of it there. Um, Data played uh, Sherlock Holmes one time on a Star Trek The New Generation uh, version of it there. Um, and there's, if you haven't seen it, don't, it's not as good if you're not an absolute fan of it, but the BBC version of Sherlock that had Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman in it is just astonishing. If you're a fan, if you're a fan, you'll pick up all of these nuances and so forth to it. Well, what are they doing? They, they've got this character. They're filling in the blanks of this character. Well, how do they fill in the blanks for Joe's wife? With so little to work with, you have more space available to do what you want to with her. So what is it that they do? Well, let's kind of walk through what they do with Job's wife through the ages. And the, the first version that we know of, of their having done something, though I, you know, I actually question that. I mentioned to you a few weeks ago that I wonder if Job's wife isn't already part of a rereading of Job. That I think maybe it was originally the friends. Um, that the friends were the ones who said, curse God. And then there's no poetic dialogues in the middle. Job refuses to curse God. You get to the, uh, the prose conclusion. And that's when God says to the friends, you haven't spoken rightly concerning me as my servant Job has. Well, he doesn't say that to Job's wife. He says that to Eliphaz, one of the friends. It may be that Job's wife is already in there to kind of take the place of the criticism from the friends to save the friends for the long poetic dialogues that's there. So we may have a rereading of Job's wife already in our text that we have in Hebrew. Certainly, we get a little bit of a rereading in the Greek version of it. So there's, you know that there's this work called the Septuagint, 
And what this is, is uh, roughly, say, 200 years before the New Testament period, you had Jews that were living in the diaspora, and some of them wanted to put the Bible into their vernacular. And so there were a group of Jews who were living in Alexandria, Egypt. So Alexandria, like Alexander the Great, the great Greek conqueror, or Macedonian conqueror, I guess it really is. Um, but they, uh, they wanted it in Greek. And so uh, there's a letter called the Letter of Aristeus that's there that gives the legendary tale of how this happened. Seventy different translators all translated it and came up with exactly the same translation. There's not a chance uh, that that's actually authentic, especially since there are lots of additions and subtractions in the Greek version there. Just amazing that they all added and subtracted the right things together. But they did translate it into Greek. And, well, as you're translating, there's a little element of commentary that inevitably slips in. And so that's what they did. Listen to the way that um, the Septuagint puts it. So the devil went out from the Lord. Notice there they don't say uh, the Satan. They, they turn it into the word diabolos um, there. The, the devil went out from the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from his feet to his head. He took a potsherd to scrape away the discharge, and he sat upon a dung heap outside the city. When much time had passed... His wife said to him, How long will you hold out, saying, Look, I will hang on a little longer while I wait for the hope of my deliverance? For look, your legacy has vanished from the earth. Sons and daughters, the pangs and pains of my womb, for whom I wearied myself with hardships in vain. There's our word for nothing. Right there again. Interesting they used it that way. And you, you sit in the refuse of worms as you spend the night in the open air. As for me, I'm the one who wanders about and am a hired servant from place to place, from house to house, waiting for when the sun will set so I can rest from the distresses and griefs that now beset me. Now say something to the Lord and die. So you, you can see they've expanded from her six words in Hebrew to a longer paragraph. And think about how they, they've changed her character just a little bit. For one thing, she's not impulsive. If you, if you look at just the Hebrew version of it, she just kind of pops up out of nowhere. We don't really know how long he suffered. Um, it could have been just immediate. And she says, curse God and die. It just seems like it's too quick. In the text there. Well, in this text, in the, in the Greek version, it highlights her travails too. We see that it's not Job who suffered, but she suffered. It's not just Job's children who died, but they're her children too, the ones that she bore. Um, and there is that, that echo there of the for nothing. She sees the effects on Job, and now she's having to work and to beg and so forth and long for the end of the day. So it's a more sympathetic version, I think, in some ways. Uh, that she is presented to us as. And her words are a little bit more ambiguous too. She doesn't actually say, curse God and die. She just says, say something to God and die. What, what exactly is it that he's supposed to say in that case? So that's our, our, our well, one of our first rereadings. Now, there's another rereading, and this is from that work that I told you is called The Testament of Job. So one of the, the very common ways that they would do uh, kind of interpretations and commentaries uh, back around the time of the New Testament period was instead of just commenting on the text like we would today where, um, you know, I just wrapped up the edits on an Exodus commentary that I'm working on and I'll, I'll take the Hebrew verse there and then I'll make a comment 
about it. And I take the Hebrew verse and I'll make a comment about it. What they tended to do was just embed into a narrative the version of the story that they want you to, to pick up on. Well, it's kind of what the Septuagint just did there, right? It doesn't say, well, now let me explain a little bit about what Mrs. Job was thinking. It just embeds it into her words. Well, that's what the Testament of Job does. Its format is it's basically like the last words of Job when he's there on his deathbed and he wants to impart some lessons to his children and so forth. We actually get a name for Job's wife. So her name is Citados. Uh, and citados is a word that has to do with someone who gives bread. That's going to be a pretty common kind of motif that will come up in, uh, in artworks uh, after this. She's, uh, Mrs. Job is always giving bread uh, to Job there. In, in the Testament of Job, Job suffers for 48 years. So that certainly removes that element of, uh, you know, um, uh, spontaneity in there to it. Uh, she works as a slave for a rich man to earn bread for Job and, uh, and for herself. And eventually the rich man cuts even those rations uh, that she gets. And she's resorted uh, to, to begging in the marketplace. And at a certain point, she's finally just out of money. And so she's trying to beg and so forth. And Satan disguises himself as a bread seller. And he says, well, yeah, I'll, I'll give you three loaves of bread in exchange for your hair. And so she cuts off her hair so that she can uh, get the bread so that she and Job can last for three more days there. The crowd, you know, says uh, now she gives even her hair for loaves here. And so this is humiliation and shame that will kind of make her a parallel to Job in some respects. Uh, there's this line that comes up uh, that the friends will say to Job repeatedly, where is the splendor of your throne? In other words, you used to be all high and mighty, but now you've been, you know, uh, defenestrated in some respects here. Well, the same thing for her that now she has been shamed. And here's the version uh, of her words that we find in the Testament of Job. Job, Job, although many things have been said in general, I speak to you in brief. In the weakness of my heart, my bones are crushed. Rise, take the loaves and be satisfied. And then speak some word against the Lord and die. Then I too shall be freed from weariness that issues from the pain of your body. Now, unlike both the Bible and the Septuagint, um, in the Testament of Job, Job doesn't really chide her for her comments there. He, he doesn't say anything about her foolishness or anything like that because what he recognizes is that the devil has confused her. That really when she speaks this way, this is the devil who is manipulating and taking advantage of her. And so he just encourages her to remember those blessings from the past that they had and to be patient until God would show mercy. Now, from the Testament of Job, it's such an influential work, we're going to get two sort of trajectories for how people will treat Mrs. Job. So the first one is that one trajectory will be quite sympathetic toward her. And so it will emphasize the time that's involved. It will emphasize her own grief, the fact that she has to suffer alongside Job there. It will emphasize her begging and the humiliation that she had to go through. So that'll be kind of one path that some of the things will do. But then there's the other path. And the other path will become increasingly negative toward Mrs. Job. Um, and you can, you can almost tell how it's going to happen if you have a character who is 
influenced by the devil to sort of try to get the man to also fall into this same sort of temptation. Does it sound like a character you've heard of before? Yeah, exactly. They're going to start to align her more with Eve. And so you're going to have uh, Mrs. Job set alongside Eve as someone influenced by the devil to try to tear down the man. And, of course, once you're on that path, there's two different ways you can go. Because one of them is you can talk about Eve's or Mrs. Job's maybe being naive. That... (laughs) Kind of an interesting wordplay there. Um, the, the, with the, uh, the, maybe I should just, the naivete, that will be better. We won't get the confusion. Um, and so just manipulated. Now, of course, this is not necessarily a positive portrayal because it will uh, treat the woman as gullible and so forth. I got my table here. Oh, good. Um, but then there's the other path that you know of where you increasingly demonize Eve. And she and, and the Satan... Well, it's not the Satan in that passage, but that's certainly how they're going to treat it. Uh, But she and the devil become almost one and the same. And so you have the woman as being the source of all of this badness. It's not just being manipulated, but someone who's genuinely bad from the start. Um, There's another uh, ancient Jewish tradition that has Job respond this way. Job was not perturbed by her words because he divined at once that Satan stood behind his wife. And seduced her to speak thus. Turning to the tempter, he said, Why don't you meet me frankly? Give up your underhanded ways, you wretch. Then Satan appeared before Job, admitted that he had been vanquished, and went away ashamed. So as that Venn diagram kind of you know, closes in between Eve and the devil, then Eve is treated more diabolically. And you can see the same thing happening with Mrs. Job. There, this will certainly be picked up uh, in medieval art. You get a number of little motifs that will be there. One is, I mentioned that element about uh, giving Job bread. What's so interesting to me, I had no idea this was the case. She's often giving Job bread on a stick. And you go, wow, is that just like how they did it? Like corn dogs or something back then? This was the way. So why does she give it on a stick? Yes, right, not to touch him, not to be too close to him because he's so foul. Well, where would they get that idea? Well, there's a verse in Job. Job 19, verse 17, it says, My breath, but the word there, it's, it can kind of go two different ways. The word for uh, your, your breath is the same word for wind and so forth, is the word ruach. But if you just drop the, the vav out of the middle, reach is the word for your smell. And so some people think that it doesn't mean my breath is loathsome, that it means my smell, my odor is loathsome. It's the way it puts it in the text. My, My breath or my smell is repulsive to my wife. I am loathsome to my own family. And so here they're picking up on that motif by having her give the bread. A lot of times uh, she'll be holding her nose or holding her robe up to her nose or something because of the smell. So that's one thing that will happen. A second thing that will happen is uh, Mrs. Joe will sometimes be depicted as if she were the devil incarnate. That it's not just influenced by Satan, but the embodiment of Satan. Uh, There's a work called The Apocalypse of Paul. It's not doesn't have anything to do with Paul the Apostle. Uh, It's just in his words. Uh, And the words of the Satan are given to Mrs. Job. 
She's the one who actually speaks those words. Uh, there's a uh, there's an altarpiece um, in a, a particular chapel of St. Job in Italy. And in this one, uh, Mrs. Job is drawn partially as Mrs. Job and partially as Satan. Um, and so it kind of blends those two together. And in some, even if she's not being portrayed um, you know, quite uh, diabolically, that the way that she'll be standing in the, uh, the artworks is with sort of a, an I told you so uh, kind of look, that there'll be hands on the hips, a kind of, you know, a, a look that I get regularly sort of thing there, you know, because usually it's, it's true, you know, and I'm, I deserve it. Um, but, you know, Job didn't deserve it. But it's a, it's a look that's not very sympathetic. It's a look that said, see, you're suffering, I told you. Um, and so it's picking out that kind of uh, uh, henpecked sort of, I've got my table in front of me, um, you know, element that's there in the story. Um, I, we, I talked about how she is being cast as a second Eve. There's a, uh, there's a, a particular work by a, a guy named Gregory the Great. Uh, and this was the definitive Middle Ages work on the book of Job. Virtually everyone who draws something does it based off of this uh, you know, particular telling of the book. Um, and he depicts her as Eve, and he's got a, a, a very interesting way of thinking through what's going on, is that it's the idea that Satan couldn't get to Job through suffering, so what he tries to do instead is to get to Job through his heart. And so he cast uh, Mrs. Job as if she's the ladder to his heart that Satan climbs up to then be able to pierce into, that it would be inaccessible ordinarily, and so he has to go to try to get his, his soft side by using uh, her to do that. Um, her heart is a ladder. Satan can climb to breach Job's heart. Um, and so she's a temptation to curse, in the same way that Eve was a temptation to eat there. Um, interestingly, the Canterbury Tales actually bring up Job in the context of two different women. Um, so one of the characters is the wonderful wife of Bath. I mean, if you, if you or should, should I say Bath? Uh, we, we've been there, um, and so um, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to go. And the, um, the, the wife of Bath has two different parts to her story there. And in the prologue, this is where she's basically kind of laying out how she has dominated all five of her husbands. Uh, and she is, she's not being cast in a very positive light here by Chaucer. Um, she's kind of the embodiment of the bad view of Job's wife. She, she is hands on the hips with an I told you so look incarnate um, in some respects. Uh, she, uh, her, her method of whipping her husbands into submission first put them in the wrong. <laughs> she claims that she tortures them without remorse. She launches complaints even when the things are all her fault. Um, and she says, And I always ruled the roost by keeping up a steady grumble. <laughs> that's, her, that's her line. Is that she, she sows chaos in there just enough that the, uh, she can then dominate her five husbands that she's had. And then she explicitly compares herself to Job's wife. It says, uh, Come near, my spouse, and let me kiss you on the cheek. You should be all patient and meek and have a sweet conscience since you preach so much of Job's patience. Well, suffer yourself. <laughs> um, you preach it so well 
Unless you do, then be certain that we'll teach you. It's fair to have a wife in peace. Now, you got to really think through that last line there. It's fair to have a wife in peace. This is Chaucerian for happy wife, happy life. It's fair, it's good to have a wife in peace. In other words, to have a wife who's not coming after you is what she's saying. She's saying, you better exhibit the patience of Job because I can make things a lot worse for you <laughs> as I have in the past. Well, this is a version of Mrs. Job here. And it's not a surprise, it's not a coincidence that it cites Job in there at that particular moment. Be nice to me or you're going to catch heck for it is the way that uh, she's being cast there. It's that version. Now, you might just look at, oh, well, you know, it's just Chaucer. He's being, you know, misogynistic or and so forth. But he has other women who are in there, like Griselda. And so there's another one of the stories. It's called The Clerk's Tale. And in The Clerk's Tale, there's a woman whose name is Griselda. And basically, she's a commoner. And she marries a nobleman whose name is Walter. And Walter just torments her. He's suspicious of her fidelity, and so when uh, Griselda has a daughter, he, uh, well, first of all, I should, I guess, uh, should take a step back and say one of the conditions for marriage was that she must be absolutely obedient to him, no matter what the request is. You'll see how far that goes in a minute. Um, and she agrees because she, she says, you know, that I, I, she's just so thankful to be in this wedding that uh, she's happy to do that. So she has a daughter, and Walter is suspicious of her fidelity. And so his request is, his insistence is, the daughter has to be sent away. And she agrees. It says, my child and I are your possession, and at your pleasure on my heart's profession, we are all yours. Do therefore as you will. And so she agrees to let her daughter be sent away. Same thing happens later when there's a son who's born. Uh, she agrees, and she says she's even willing to die if that's what needs be uh, to, uh, to satisfy him. This is the final test. He wants to divorce her and marry a younger bride. And so he's going to send her back to her father's house and insist that she prepare the wedding to the younger bride. Her response, naked out of my father's house I went, and naked I returned there today. It's the line from Job, right? Do you see the Jobin connection in there? These tests of fidelity of someone who is entirely faithful, taking away the children and so forth, that kind of thing, and her response, well, Griselda is cast like Job, certainly the Job of the prologue, as someone who never questions, who's just obedience. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him, is Job's line inside the book there. Um, if, if the wife of Bath is going to be Eve and Job's wife, then Griselda is going to be Mary and Job's wife. She is going to be the, the sort of perfect picture of the, the comforting version of Job's wife there. And you can tell there's a Mary connection. She's described as the grace sent from God into a little ox's stall like Jesus. Her heart so equitable and her hand so just that they thought heaven had sent her down to right all wrongs. See, this is where Chaucer's so interesting. He, he won't let you put him in a box. 
just when you think you've got him, he's like Shakespeare. Um, just when you think you've got him nailed down, well, there's another element there. And so, um, you know, how ought we to think about the wife of Beth? Oh, well, she's terrible. Well, except the same clerk who tells the story of the clerk's wife, he, he has this to say about women. Take my word for it. There is no libel on women that the clergy will not paint. So here, if we've got the wife of Bath being told in a, such a terrible way, well, we also have the clerk saying, yeah, you got to take that with a grain of salt, how she's being cast there. But then on the other side, there's also a warning, and it's not clear if it's from the clerk or from Chaucer himself about uh, Griselda to say that her virtues are unrealistically ideal and that you shouldn't hope to ever encounter a person quite like that. A little bit like our Job character again, right? Positively saintly. Is he human? By splitting Job's wife into two characters, into Allison, the, the wife of Bath, and, and into Griselda, he, he makes you kind of look at both sides of Job's wife, I think, and throws those uh, words about Job in there at just the right point. It's interesting to see a lot of the modern readings of Job's wife, and you can imagine the direction they go. They tend to valorize uh, Job's wife, and so she becomes sort of the heroine of the story. She's the rebel. She's the one who calls out for justice, uh, even against God. Um, the unfortunate part about that, I, I think, is that uh, if the presentations of Job's wife in antiquity were two-dimensional, because they always just present her kind of flat way as being bad. Well, the modern ones are kind of two-dimensional uh, because they treat her as so good, and they also end up taking Job and flattening out him. Because the way that you valorize her is she's the rebel, she's willing to speak up to God while Job's over there henpecked and silent and won't speak up. And I, <laughs> I say... Have you read the next 39 chapters of the book <laughs> by any chance? What do you mean Job will not speak up? No one in the Bible you know, cries out the way that Job does. And so um, if you want to cast Job as this figure who just sits there patiently and doesn't do anything and won't you know, say a peep uh, to God about it, I'm like, maybe we just, we just turn the page you know, to chapter 3, and then we could see if that's the case, in fact. Um, so you, you do get all of these re-readings of Mrs. Job. I, I think it's important, though, to go back to the original of Mrs. Job because even the first version of Job has some ambiguities in there. The Hebrew of uh, Job's wife's words, it's only six words long. It says, betumatecha. So that clarifies everything, I hope. Uh, oh, wait, I only read the first three. Barech Elohim Vamut. So what does that say there? Well, the, the, the way that the New Revised Standard puts it is, do you still persist in your integrity? The English Standard Version says, do you still hold fast in your integrity? The King James says, dost thou still retain thine integrity? You catch a theme there. They're all questions. It is not clear that the first three words that Mrs. Job speaks are a question. What, what she really just says is, you still persist in your integrity. The wording is identical to what God says. It has the word ode, which means still, the word machazik, which means persist, and then the word tum, betumo or betumecha there, 
She says the same thing God says. And there's no question marker on there. Hebrew doesn't have a question mark, but it has a little thing called ha that it puts at the beginning of the thing to, to tell you that it's a question. That's absent. She may, instead of questioning Job in this kind of sarcastic way, oh, do you still persist in your integrity? She's just affirming Job, potentially, because see, it's ambiguous, and saying, you still persist in your integrity. That can be a compliment rather than a criticism in the way that she says it. If it's a criticism, well, then it's the hands-on-the-hips version. Oh, there you go. But if it's a compliment, then it's a comfort. She has watched him endure all of this, and like God, she affirms, Job, you are truly righteous. So what about the second three words? Well, I told you a few weeks ago that um, the, the text of Job does not use the word curse. So seven times in the first two chapters, there's the word bless. And the issue is how many of those really are supposed to be bless, and how many of them are euphemisms for curse? So, for example, when it's Job's kids, it says, perhaps they have blessed God in their hearts, and so he offers the sacrifices there. I don't think we need sacrifices just in case they happen to bless God. What he means, or what the translator has done there, is said, I'm not willing to put the word curse God in there. And so that blessing is supposed to, it's kind of like we say, oh man, that is a bad, bad man. But what we really mean is, wow, he's a really good, good man. Or he is, boy, that is a bad man on the football field. Or, you know, we use bad sometimes to, to mean good. It's the kind of opposite. I'm sure there's a name for that figure of speech. Uh, when the Satan says to God twice, touch his body or touch his stuff, and he will bless you to your face. <laughs> well, it doesn't really mean that he'll bless. It means he'll curse. But what about with Mrs. Job? With Mrs. Job, is she saying, curse God and die? It's not what the Word says. Is she saying, bless God and die? And that actually raises the issue. What, what control does Job have on the die part? Is it curse God? And is she thinking that God will then strike him or something? Boy, he didn't strike the kids when they had their sacrifices or you know, that Job offered there. Is it, is it God will strike him? Is she encouraging him to commit suicide and end the suffering? If she's encouraging suicide, well, is it curse or bless? Maybe she's saying, bless God and then just die. Bless God and commit suicide and end your own pain there. You've been faithful, but you can't go any longer. Just say your last word of praise to God and end your own suffering there. Is that what she's saying? See, it's hard. My goodness, Job. <laughs> Job is an ambiguous book here. The way that Job dismisses her comments in the New Revised Standard is too broad. See, it was good that I had my table, even though I don't actually agree with the translation they have in the NRSV. In, Job, uh, in Job's comments there, it says, He said to her, You speak as any foolish woman would speak. So you take that any foolish woman line there. Well, that means, in other words, all women are foolish. You're just acting like a foolish woman. You know, that's what they're like. I, now, look, this is important that I've got my table here um, for this because this is not my view, but you'll probably laugh at it at least. For my student trip that we had to Israel before the folks from IPC came, as we were going to the airport to drop them off and then pick you all up, 
we had uh, not our driver who was with us, Talib, uh, Abu Jaldad, but instead um, uh, Abu Sharif, that was Talib's brother, whose name was Fawad. Fawad did not speak a whole lot of English. And so as we're driving along, somebody, I don't know if they cut us off or they were straddling two lanes, but they did something and they were driving poorly. And Fawad looks back at me and says one single word, woman, <laughs> as if that were explanation enough <laughs> to say he need go no further in explaining what was going on that once he's identified her as a woman, well, that solves the whole thing. Well, that's the way Job's line sounds there, doesn't it? Except that's not exactly what the Hebrew says. The Hebrew says, you are speaking like one of the foolish women would speak. Or you are speaking like a foolish woman would speak. In other words, Job's not saying all women are foolish. But just like some men are foolish, some women are foolish, and you're speaking like one of the foolish ones there. Job is not dismissing her quite as much in that case. Job does dismiss what she says. He's saying, you are speaking like a foolish woman in this case. So whatever she says is not going to be advice that he takes, but it does have an effect. Notice the difference in Job's words at the end of his two bouts of suffering. The first time, shall we, uh, it says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. The second time, Shall we receive the good at the hand of God and not receive the bad? See, that's got two changes. The second time's a question. The first time was a statement. The second time says, what God is doing to me is bad. Now, the dilemma that Job is going to have is how is he going to respond to this circumstance? Because it seems like the options have been laid out. Either just suck it up and take it from God, even though it's bad, or curse God and die. Now, if you know the rest of the book of Job, you know Job's not going to take either path. Job's going to start cursing in chapter 3. He's not going to curse God. He's going to curse the day of his birth. And he's not going to take the option of suicide or cursing God and die. What he's going to do instead is he's going to lament. Once Job says, this is bad, but I won't curse you, that's going to throw the whole story for a loop. But we have to wait two weeks for that. I will see you all two weeks from today. Blessings upon you all. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you uh, even for the, the parts of the book of Job we can't understand. They force us to go back to it again and again. And I trust to go back to you again and again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.